from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And from Crowfoot, who was one of the leaders of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe, what is life? It's the flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of buffalo in wintertime. <coughs> Some years ago, a Tibetan Rinpoche <coughs> told me about a place near to where he was born in a very isolated area high in the mountains of Tibet where people have no access to matches and of course there's no electricity or gas for light, for warmth, or for cooking. So for these necessities of life, light, warmth, and cooking, a fire is necessary for these people. To make a new fire without any matches each day as a project. It takes some time. So the people that live in this area never let the fires go out. All day, every day, they keep a small fire burning. And at night, they cover it with ashes so that in the morning, there's at least a coal or two to start their day with. The Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with impermanence as their practice that at night they don't try to save any coals because they're so sure that in the morning they might not be alive. And also when they finish their last cup of tea at night, they turn their cup over for this same reason, to let the next person know that they have finished, really finished. So every night, they prepare to die. They're ready, so to say. The deep knowing, the deep living with impermanence is an entryway, a gateway to liberation, a gateway to freeing the mind, freeing the heart. The only thing that we can know for sure is that everything changes. So paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of impermanence. The wisdom, the understanding of impermanence is really the bedrock of the Buddhist teaching. It was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and where he grew up in search of his path to enlightenment. Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, we could say, uh, grew up in very, very comfortable surroundings, very protected surroundings, being the son of a king and a queen. At his birth, 
a seer, a wise man, told his parents that this baby would grow up to be either an exceptionally wise ruler or if he encountered great suffering, he would become a renunciate and a great spiritual teacher. So his parents, in order to uh, keep him on the kingly track, tried to protect him from encountering any suffering. This is from one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father had even, even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that wasn't from Benares. My turban was of silk from Benares, as was my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I never once came down from that palace. But all of this protection, luxury, sensual pleasure, couldn't keep him. He wasn't totally satisfied. At one point, as uh, young people are, are want to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out on his own to see what life was like beyond the palace walls. And so he asked his friend, Chana, the chariot driver, to take him for a ride through town. His father heard of this before it happened, and so he ordered everything to be taken out of sight, everyone to be taken out of sight, and everything that might cause some disturbance to his son, to be taken off the streets, to be taken off out of view. But of course, as we well know, um, it's just not possible to have this kind of control of life. So Chana and Siddhartha went out for a ride. And not long after they were beyond the palace walls, Siddhartha saw a person walking on the road who was covered with oozing sores, a person walking with a great deal of difficulty, not looking well. He'd been quite protected, and it said that he had never seen anything quite like this before. He asked Chana, what is this? Who, what's, what's going on here? What's the matter with this person? His friend told him this is a sick person, very sick person. We all get sick. You will, your parents will, I will, all your friends will. Well, that was enough at that moment for Siddhartha, so he said, let's go home. And he spent a pretty restless night. But the next morning he wanted to go out again. And so they did. Pretty quickly he saw someone walking down the road, walking very, very slowly, bent over with a cane, very dry, wrinkled skin, and very thin, wispy gray hair. It said that he had never seen anything quite like this before. And he said to Chana, what's the matter with this person? What's going on? His friend said, this is an old, very old person. Everyone gets old. 
You will. I will. Your parents will. All your friends will. Well, again, Siddhartha felt like this was enough. Back home to the palace and another restless night. But the next day, he wanted to go again. So they did. As they got a little bit closer to town, Siddhartha saw a group of people all dressed in white. And they were crying and wailing. They were carrying a plank up overhead with what looked like a form on it that was covered with um, cloth. Siddhartha said, what's this? What's going on here? And what is it that they're carrying? And Chana said, this is a funeral procession. They're carrying a dead body. Everybody dies. I will, you will, your parents, all your friends, everyone. Well, again, Siddhartha was disturbed. He said, enough, let's go home. That night he barely slept, but he wanted to go out again the next day. So they did. Not long after they were out, Siddhartha, the next morning, noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth. He was walking down the road. The man was walking with a lightness, a grace, and a a flow about him, a kind of peacefulness and ease. And Siddhartha said to Chana, who's that? Chana responded, this man's a renunciate, a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. At that point, Siddhartha said, let's go home. This is enough. As the story goes, because of Siddhartha's many lifetimes of development into an extremely sensitive, compassionate human being, the sights that he saw, sickness, old age, death, and a renunciate, struck him very deeply, very profoundly. These four encounters are called the four heavenly messengers. Siddhartha was struck deeply by the impermanent and insubstantial nature of life that the first three messengers displayed and the obvious suffering that he witnessed in relation to these first three encounters. He found himself very interested and quite powerfully drawn to what the fourth messenger was representing, seeking peace, seeking freedom seeking the truth. And again, from one of the Buddha's discourses, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me, when an untaught person, himself or herself, subject to aging, to illness, to death, not beyond aging, illness, or death, sees another who is aged, ill, or dead, He or she is horrified, humiliated, disgusted, oblivious to herself or himself that he or she too is subject to aging, illness, and death. And if I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is old, sick, or dead, that would not be fitting for me. As I noticed this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, 
seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death. Because there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. And the Buddha went on to say, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life, as one sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, and often quite unconsciously, is the myth that of things somehow staying the same, or the myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and how consequential it is to experience just one moment fully absorbed in the purity of loving-kindness. He also said that even more powerful and fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in practice where one knows very clearly and surely the momentariness of all appearances, which is eventually at some point followed by the experiential insight into the furthest extreme of impermanence, the momentary experience of the whole field of formations dissolving, ceasing. The seed of liberation The seed of freedom lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And from the Buddha. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. And what has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe, begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life Every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every breath. This world of form without and the world of form within, none of it is static. None of it. Our earth feels so solidly here. It seems so permanently in place. A few years ago, I received a postcard from a friend. It had a very beautiful photograph on the front side of it of some sand dunes with mountains behind them. 
and it was quite a pleasure to look at this photograph. I turned the card over, and there was an explanation of the photograph on the back. This is what it said. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park, deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago, when an ocean covered this area, creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago, when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks, and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. So I turned the card back over and looked at the photograph again with a different eye. And yet still, with, it was still a pleasure to see the picture, but with a different eye. The places that we live in often appear to us as they've, so they've forever been the way that they are now, or at least not much change has taken place. And our attitude and our actions very often reflect this. I've taught in Israel a few times, and one of the times um, that I was there, Israel being a place uh, where there's so much strife, around whose place it is that's uh, been going on for centuries between all of the various groups of people uh, in the past and right up to this very moment that have inhabited the area and inhabit the area now. And when I was there, I found out um, that Jerusalem, which is a city that's built on rock, built of rock, built on rock. You may have heard of Jerusalem stone. The whole city is made of Jerusalem stone, and it's built on top of Jerusalem stone. Seemingly the most solid city I've ever seen. I found out that Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries. This is a, a poem from Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet. We, the mortals, touch the metals, the wind, the ocean shores, the stones, knowing they will go on, inert or burning. And I was discovering, naming all these things, it was my destiny to love and say goodbye. We look up into the sky, and it doesn't matter where we are on Earth. We see particular formations of stars, familiar, kind of like old friends. And I travel a fair amount, and it is kind of like old friends sometimes, no matter where I am. I found this little um, article in the newspaper one day. Our own Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy. But you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It would then take perhaps a hundred million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. 
another burst of star formation will then occur, with winds from the shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. There will be no trace of Earth, save perhaps for the 1970s-era Pioneer and Voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. The fireworks aren't due for more than five billion years, long before the sun has burned out and reduced the Earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, from now we'll all be dead anyway, says Hubble, uh, Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. Brilliant deduction. <laughs> However, he goes on to say, if we move out to the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness that from somewhere else in the galaxy. I think for most of us the word form implies solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming. They're coming together and coming apart. They're constantly changing, endlessly changing. So our world, we could say, can't be solidly objectified. It's not a noun, it's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time, we really only know this as an abstraction, as a concept. We mostly know it just intellectually. And actually, I think even more often we forget it, or we ignore it, or we're constantly trying to distract ourselves from it by accumulating, by planning, by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing, by hoping expecting, coveting, fearing. If we rigidly, if we tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, and as you well know, uh, how we want our next sitting to be, all of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then inevitably we have to come to face disappointment or anger, or judgment, or sadness, or grief. And we've missed the moment. We've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed what Thich Nhat Hanh calls our appointment with life. And we're reinforcing, actually. We're perpetuating the delusion. The delusion of a false sense of control and permanence. So actually, much of the time, we're practicing permanence. I think a lot of the time, we almost desperately want things to stay as they are, or to continue as we know them, or to become the way we want them to become, so much so that we actually believe we have control, that things will do what we want them to do. But as someone said, uh, this belief is only make-believe, made-up beliefs, made-up belief. As our practice deepens, as we begin to see more and more clearly, we begin to discover that actually belief has little or really nothing to do with reality. 
and that the tighter we hold on to our beliefs, the more limited our life is. I think a good question that you might ask yourself every now and then is, how often do I construct my life on this very flimsy, very rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs, with all of the assumptions, sometimes misinformation, all the various and changing opinions and ideas about this and that, and hold on to it very tightly. How often do I construct my life on this very unstable foundation? As we pay a kind of extraordinary attention to our experiences of body and mind through our practice, we begin to touch directly, to know experientially, the constant rapidity of change. From the large, macro, seemingly solid substantiality of form, to the smallest, most minute micro-changes in sensations or uh, the thoughts that, seemingly substantial thoughts that just fly through the mind. There's a very um, succinct and uh, beautiful teaching, Tibetan teaching, that says all thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a a story that I'm told is true um, about a physicist who did a great deal of research on matter and, and its components, breaking it all down, as physicists do, and finding nothing substantial. And uh, it's said that uh, he went a little bit crazy when he found this out. And he started wearing these great, big, huge padded slippers just in case he fell through the floor. In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear, why do we resist this really perfectly natural phenomena? Change. The beginnings, the endings, the births, the deaths. Why can't we just surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist, fear, so much of life? Without impermanence, actually, there wouldn't be any life. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. If there is no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever. And you will never have an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. This is a a poem by a man named Red Hawk. It's 
called The Wheat Farmer Says Goodbye to His Only Daughter. His heart cracks like parched earth to see her go, but he is not free enough to weep, so he walks with her this evening out in the summer wheat where the stalks beat softly. Suddenly in his fertile anguish, his heart blooms, and like the last mad king of wild wheat, he grabs his child and twirls her. Through the sea of grain, he whirls her, she holding tight, he boldly dancing in the moonlight. When at last they fall, he is winded and amazed. On his knees, he embraces her. And then she takes her leaving, like a wild wheat flower dancing, waving softly in the softly breathing wind. He watches her go weaving, moving slowly through the moonlight, and he fingers ripened grain in calloused hand. There's just one thing to do now that his daughter is departed, to harvest cleanly and without regret. In this way he pays homage to the precious seeds he's planted. One blooms by rooting, one by blowing away. Looked at from these perspectives, change, impermanence, is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement of constant change and cycling of all of life, all the life on the planet. The possibility of immediate presence with this process not getting caught up, not getting sunk, not getting lost in hopes, fears, regrets. They may come up, but not getting lost in them. All of the life on this planet is dying all of the time. In the same volume, that new life that brings for instance, such incredible beauty, joy, delight to us every spring, or the new day that greets us every morning when we wake up. The possibility of immediate presence with this process of change, impermanence, and even the possibility of potential joys arising out of this presence. This is from William Blake. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance, this kind of radical acceptance of the changing nature of things, the way of things, our nature as nature. There are many, many mirrors for us in our practice through all of the six sense doors. It's said that there are 84,000 teachings from the Buddha for us to learn from, 84,000 practices. The mirror of the changing seasons around us and within us. 
very powerful mirror. Some years ago when I was sitting a three-month retreat at IMS, just this time of year, and I was taking a walk through the forest behind the center during the height of autumn color, and I was seeing the ground literally carpeted, as I've noticed the last few days, carpeted with rich reds and shades of brown and yellows and shimmering golds and greens. It was incredible beauty. You've probably noticed. I was quite immersed in this experience. And then all of a sudden, there was a knowing coming in. Not through thought, not at all through thought, but a very deep intuitive knowing that this beauty is death that the world is dying in its unbearable beauty. I cried for about three and a half days after that. A lot, not constantly, but quite a lot, quite deeply also. You know, when you're in a long retreat, if you need to do that, you can. I was grieving, in a sense, grieving the loss of the world feeling my my heart breaking and at the same time elated. It was an opening, an opening and a release. Shortly after this experience, a friend gave me this haiku. When with breaking heart I realized this world is only a dream, the oak tree looks radiant. And this is from Michael Rhodes. A leaf falls into the breeze onto the water's surface, now begins the movement back to its original cellular form. Given a period of time, the base minerals of the vanished leaf will once again surge within new sap, moving within another leaf on another tree, from leaf to leaf. Yet does one know the other? So it is with humanity. Does present self know of other? Thus it is with all life. The movement never ends. Mortality is but a single movement in an infinity. This constant cycling, circling, the universal movement of life, from light to dark to light to dark, the seasons, rain, Storm, sun, cycling around. The movement of the breath through the body. This is a a poem from Mary Oliver who writes about this in her very unique and beautiful way. Look, the trees are turning their bodies into pillars of light are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my life leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, 
to hold it against your bones, knowing your life depends on it, and when the time comes, to let it go, to let it go. As we look more closely at our own process through our practice, we might uh, begin to see that we've been living under what one teacher called an assumed identity. The assumed solidity of our body and our thoughts. Usually very quickly followed by grasping onto thoughts, feelings, emotions. Grasping onto all of the habitual fixations that we live with and believe and call me, call mine and think that's who we are. As we practice, we begin to see, we begin to experience more and more directly and more often that things, that the phenomena of life aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least as they have appeared up until now. We begin to experience the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as process just happening as changing sensations, changing feelings, or various changing manifestations of formations of mind, of body, each with particular qualities, particular flavors, textures, that are also constantly changing in themselves. And so our relationship to all of the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. The compulsive, addictive grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show, begins to loosen its strong attraction. Trying to control what is actually uncontrollable, ungovernable, as the Buddha says. This ongoing miracle of constant change we call life it begins to soften as we open our hands, so to say. And we begin to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath this impetus to control, the fear of being with life as it is, actually begins to relax, open, weaken. The fear begins to fade as we begin to see more clearly and to just simply surrender more deeply to the truth of the moment. So now we're practicing impermanence. Occasionally people have asked me over the years, as you may have asked yourself and maybe ask others who practice, why do you practice? At one point when I was uh, asked this, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. And so it is, I am practicing for my death. On one level, so that if conditions allow, I might have the great strength and clarity of mindfulness to be fully present at what we think of as the big death. And I think most of us um, think that this particular moment, the big death moment, 
will be an extraordinary moment. But it's just another moment. Another moment really with all of the same principles that apply to any other moment. Just simply be with what's happening. Right here, right now. In the body, the mind, the heart. A moment like any other moment to just be as you are. Just that. A moment to be approached and connected with with beginner's mind, as it's called, in a fresh way. Don't know mind. Because it's a moment that we'll have never experienced before. So I'm practicing towards the possibility of being present with this. But the momentary reality of practice right now is that I'm practicing to be present with the death of my conditioned self. The death of the habitually learned patterns that keep making, keep recreating this assumed identity. This delusion of a separate, solid self. And seeing how selfing keeps happening. And letting go over and over and over again. I'm practicing to see the death of who I think I am and the birth or the truth of who I am. There are hundreds, thousands, millions actually of little endings, little deaths, moment to moment, breath by breath. And in ways that we never have imagined or expected. As our practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, uh, to clearly see, and to accept, and to surrender to this perfectly natural phenomena. The assumed solidity, the assumed identity of me, of I, that's so frightening to let go of is seen through our practice more and more as just process. Beginning and ending, again and again and again, every minute, every second, if we're really being attentive. What appears to be a steady, solid flow of experience, even the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be. It's kind of like the separate frames of a film. The illusion being as though it's an ongoing, continuous flow. When in reality, it's all beginning and ending, arising and falling, in the mo- on the most minute level, second by second by second. And this is from the Buddha. Yogis, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Listen to that. And what yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana? Here a yogi sees the I as impermanent, sees forms as impermanent, sees I consciousness as impermanent, 
sees eye contact as impermanent, sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, as impermanent. She or he sees the ear as impermanent, the mind, mental phenomena, mind consciousness, mind contact, whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, as impermanent. This yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. The acceptance of change, of the forming and the unforming, of the birth and the death, is actually, really truly, the acceptance of life. All the aspects of who we think we are keep changing, including what we think we want, what we think we need, our desires that seem so very clear, so strong, and so right in any given moment. They can change quite rapidly, as I'm sure you've noticed. Pleasant experience changes into unpleasant experience, and vice versa. Pleasant and unpleasant can very quickly move into likes and dislikes, and then rapidly move into seeming needs or rightful rejections. We're happy. We're unhappy all relative conditioned states of mind, totally dependent on a whole set of conditions, which themselves are also changing constantly, moment to moment. Emotional states of mind, for many of us, are stickiest experiences. And they, too, change very quickly. For instance, states of anger, irritation, resentment, judgment, all feel very solid when we feel these things. They seem very right. They seem quite absolute. For instance, anger, it's a very powerful, very energetic, very passionate energy. With a clear attention into anger, seeing and knowing and letting go of the self-referencing, the identification, my anger, my righteous anger. Letting go of the contracted self-centered quality inherent in anger. Pulling out the thread of self. We can clearly see what's actually taking place then on all sides, from all perspectives. There's a connection. There's the possibility then of the transformation of anger into a mirror-like wisdom. And if necessary, out of this will spring appropriate compassionate action. As we open and see more clearly, we begin to see ourselves as well as others with less and less judgment. And we might also begin to see that we are still, to whatever degree, acting out of and have in the past acted out of ignorance, acted out of forgetfulness, 
acted, or more accurately, reacted out of old, conditioned, habituated places of suffering many, many times ourselves. And so we change. We begin to meet ourselves, as well as meeting others, with more compassion. This is from Zen Master Dogen. He defined Buddha nature as being impermanence. He said, we do not just have Buddha nature, we are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness and ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight, the great compassion, impartial care, love, heartfulness, that may include one's enemy. Many of us, actually probably most of us, at times have had very strong identification with our face and our body um, in relation to how it looked when we were younger. There are times um, when my mother, who is now 91 years old, when she and I find ourselves standing next to each other and looking in the mirror looking at ourselves and each other. It's not a planned event, but it occurs at times. At one point when we were doing this, she was saying to herself and to me, I see an old woman. It's so strange. And she kept repeating it over. It's so strange. It's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. A more recent time uh, when this happened, she said, I look older than everybody else. And then she said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. And then she looked at me and she said, how old am I? And I told her. And she said, how old are you? And I told her. And she said, I can't believe I have a 62-year-old daughter. It's so strange. And she started, it's so strange, it's so strange. Is it strange? Is it really strange? I mean, stranger than what? (laughs) It's life doing what it does. It's life being lifey. One of my Israeli students uh, gave me this poem It's called Such Tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom, not faults of an earthquake, an airy network, cracks of horror, How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a net of grieving nerves, fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines so we can withstand it all. 
such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us, graciously prepare us, tell us in whispers little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving. Have you ever looked at your face in the mirror for a long time? Just really focused and and looked for a long time. It keeps changing. It just keeps on changing and changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? a piece from Stephen Mitchell called Narcissus. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau beneath the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot, Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled, or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. The Mirror of Nature as the teacher of emptiness. Another uh, teacher of not-self or emptiness. Another three-month retreat story. Sitting behind, this is a story of mine, sitting behind the small dining room over at IMS, watching the grasses every day. Actually watching particular blades of grass. Um, You know, you can get kind of obsessive at times when you're sitting for a long time. And it was late fall. The grass was drying up. Watching these particular blades of grass losing their color, losing their moisture, drying up, changing shape, curling over, changing form. Noticing all of this actually quite acutely. Are we different than this? Are we really very different from this? What's the dharma of grass? No matter how much moisturizer we use, no matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how much good healthy food we eat and exercise we do, our skin dries out. Our hair loses its color. Our body changes shape. 
No matter who we are or how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep, and there's nothing we can do about it. And this is another, uh, another poem by Red Hawk. We have to go deeper inside like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we've had enough and it's no longer worth it to get up out of bed. The morning is cold. The gray clouds move in like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That's when we have to go deeper through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die or their nerves will fail. Women or men will cease to be thrilled with you, and your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go go gray and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it's easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you, and then to sit there in the heart where you will be not be taken, while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag of bones. was said by the Buddha that at one time when a male deva was um, reveling and boasting about the realm of celestial pleasure and beautiful beings that he abided in, that upon hearing this, another deva, a female deva, who was a very devoted and noble disciple of the Buddha thought, this foolish deva imagines his glory will be permanent and unchanging, unaware that it's subject to cutting off perishing in dissolution. And it's said that she spoke the following stanza in order to dispel this deva's delusion. Don't you know, you fool, the maxim of the arahants? Impermanent are all formations. Their nature is to arise and vanish. Having arisen, they cease. Their appeasement is blissful. Lewis Thomas, in his uh, book called The Lives of a Cell, says it's hard to see how we can continue to keep the secret with such multitudes doing the dying. If we're truly inclined towards freedom, we're actually going to have to give up the notion that um, death is something gone wrong, it's a catastrophe, or it's detestable, or that it's avoidable, or even that it's strange. We're going to have to give that up at some point.
our practice directs us towards learning about the cycling of life and about our direct and immediate connection to the process. Everything that comes alive seems to be in trade for something that dies. And Lewis Thomas says, there might be some comfort in the recognition of synchrony, in the formation that we all go down together in the best of company. When I was 18 years old, my uh, best high school girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario for a few days to see some Shakespearean plays there. And on our way home, it was Labor Day, and we had an automobile accident. And my friend was killed in that accident. It was really quite amazing. One moment she was alive, she was driving the car, and we'd had these three very wonderful days together. And the next moment she was lying in the middle of the highway, dying. And me with just a few scrapes and bruises on my knees and my feet. She was lying there in the road and I was washing her body with water, putting water on her dying body. And then, and then she was just gone. It was an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. And not very long after she died, I made a resolve to myself that I would live life fully every moment. Or actually, I think, I think I said every second. Because now I knew that life could end any second. And of course, I've forgotten my resolve many, many times but I've also remembered it many, many times. The whole experience with its particular kind of clear insight into impermanence was really a big part of what guided me towards spiritual practice. Although in my 18-year-old self, I certainly didn't really think of it or word it that way. It's been interesting to see how this resolve to live life fully um, has unfolded over the years. There's been an ongoing letting go of the complexities and um, some of the seeming necessities of what we call normal life. So, in a sense, living more fully has meant living more simply, which in turn, has allowed me to be more fully with the moments of living, with the process of change, the beginnings, the endings, the births, the deaths. This letting go, renunciation, has evolved over the years as more and more as letting go of that which doesn't serve awakening. And it really unfolds quite naturally through our spiritual practice. Sometimes it's a conscious choice to made between this or that. But I think very often, for many of us, it's just a matter of really paying attention, paying a very mindful attention, really being present and responding however it's most appropriate 
in whatever ways are clearly the healthiest for both oneself and for others in any particular time, in any particular situation. Which, in fact, means at times letting go. Letting go of or renouncing some of our habitual ways of engaging or not engaging, both inwardly and outwardly. Giving up some of our attachments, letting go, relinquishing. Which doesn't mean rejecting, for instance, the people that we're closest to. It doesn't mean that. It just means relating to them and to things, to life, in really a new way, a kind of radically new way. This is from a Cherokee Feast of Days, speaking about autumn. Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually sheds any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. It's so valuable because this clear seeing of impermanence leads to the end of suffering. Clear and sure insight into impermanence leads to the understanding of the cause of confusion, anguish, the cause of suffering. Clearly seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena knowing very surely the momentariness of all appearances leads to the understanding of the conditional nature of phenomena, the selfless, empty nature of all things, which includes our self. This insight really being the seed and the primary fruit of liberation. In our thinking, most of us assume that permanence provides security and impermanence doesn't. But in actuality, though, change is often very difficult and quite disturbing at first. As we open to it, as we get to know it more and more deeply, we begin to understand that it's really one of the gifts of life. I mean, what if nothing ever changed? Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? What an incredible nightmare it would be if nothing ever changed. In 1985, my house uh, burned down to the ground. Fortunately, there was no one there when it happened. My three sons and I were away visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at the time. I received a phone call a couple of days after we'd arrived at my mother's from a friend who lived down the road. And this was in the woods in Michigan, in the Michigan woods. He called to tell me that my house had burned down to the ground. And my first response was, "Um, you're kidding. You know, denial. I mean, but who would call somebody up? thousands of miles away on Christmas and say, 
your house burned down is a joke, you know. <laughs> so quickly I realized he meant what he said. My house had burned down to the ground. We had a very brief conversation, and I hung up the phone, and I cried very hard for about 15 or 20 minutes. And my mother, who was standing right next to me, just held me, didn't even ask me why I was crying, and I cried. And then my brother, who was also visiting, we both sat down, my brother and I, and had a long conversation, a couple of hours. By the end of that conversation, the fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to bind me anymore. We could say uh, the spiritual path burned its way open for me. <laughs> uh, just to make a give a little more understanding of that. I had gone uh, to visit my mother that Christmas with the thought in mind that I was going to take a year's sabbatical and uh, really investigate the spiritual life and find a way to be fully engaged in it. And I was trying to decide what I should do with my house. My goal was during that Christmas holiday to decide what to do with my house. Should I sell it? Should I rent it? You know, that kind of so uh, the spiritual uh, life burned its, you know, the spiritual life burned its way open, <laughs> so to say, literally. Uh, and there I was, without anything binding me anymore. I ended up going to Asia for a year and a half and practicing very diligently. And then came back to this country and continued practicing very diligently. And if it wasn't for that fire, I think there's a very good chance that I wouldn't uh, be sitting here with you in this way this evening. I don't know that for sure, but good chance I wouldn't be here this way. That huge uh, change was really a great gift that uh, is still unwrapping itself when I think about it. This is a haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. This is from Carlos Castaneda. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Not long before Carlos Castaneda Castaneda died, um, he and three of his friends were having lunch together. And this is just a, a little portion of a piece that was written by Michael Ventura, who was one of those three people having lunch with Carlos. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill. But for all his fragility, he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child, but still she felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? Answering this woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or the generosity of his manner. Yet a steely thing came into his voice a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair 
and remember that her child, her husband, everyone she loved, and she herself were going to die. And they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, and you'll soon have a spiritual life, said Carlos. Later in the conversation, this woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow his advice and follow it deeply so that it wouldn't be just an exercise. Carlos said, you give yourself a command. On the page, there's no, there's no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it was as though he suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. What's that mean, one of us asked. It means you give yourself a command, said Carlos. And that was that. A command is not a promise. A command is not trying. A command is something that must be obeyed. His tone evoked something deeper than the idea of mere will. His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing or wishing. To step on the path, you step on the path. There's no substitute for that.